episode 227. What should pharma be doing right now about the HHS proposal to effectively curtail PBM rebates? Today, I speak with Kuo Tong, a managing director over at Navigant. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. If you don't know the nuts and bolts of the current HHS, Health and Human Services proposal, to effectively nix pharma's ability to pay PBM rebates, then it is possible you might want to listen to episode 216 with Chris Sloan first. In this episode, we don't talk much about the impact of the HHS proposal on patient premiums or drug costs. That is episode 216, as Afer mentioned. What we do talk about today is the impact on pharmaceutical companies of this proposal. We also discuss the drug buying transaction. Kuo Tang is my guest today. Kuo is the managing director in the life sciences practice of Navigant. He focuses on how pharma companies interact with insurance companies and get reimbursed for their drugs. And those two things are actually the burning questions that we aim to answer today. Will pharma's interactions with and reimbursement from insurance companies change after this proposed HHS rule goes into effect, assuming it goes into effect? We also talk about what pharma could and should be doing right now to improve the odds of a smooth transition into what will probably amount to a new contracting model. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Quo, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hi, great to talk to you. The HHS secretary, Alex Azar, and the administration, they have said that they are striving for better market results. And I'm assuming what they mean by that is to eliminate these perverse incentives, to eliminate channel partners doing things which are, let's just say, not in the best interests of America, (laughs) Americans, (laughs) and to try to assess where the real value is in these healthcare companies. What do you feel like, you know, if you're a pharma company at this juncture and you are hearing those types of statements being made, what does better market results translate to as far as pharma might be concerned at this juncture? I call this saber rattling, right? That's what politics is about. That's somewhat that's about our democracy. We, we can make these statements and we can debate what is good for the, the citizens and what was good for our country overall. And I think this idea that we created this entitlement benefit, which is very costly, and are we getting the right entitlement? Medicare beneficiaries ultimately benefiting from all this money that's going into the the Part D benefit and and the players. And I think what we're finding is, well, again, the costs to the patient are so high that the patients who could benefit from these wonderful products are simply not able to. And so from the pharma side, my advice to industry is, you know, look at what's happening. Over and over again, we've talked about the cost of R&D, billion, two billion, whatever you want to, you know, whatever citation you want. 19% though of of total pharma revenue, which is an often cited counter to that, right? Yes. And I think from pharma side, you really have to, to say to yourself, in most other countries and regions of the world, I have to justify my price 
and justify price increases to a centralized authority. And ultimately, what I advise companies is just assume that that is a given. How would that change your behavior for commercial products today? How would that change what you prioritize for the pipeline or what you bring to market? I'll give you an example. Oftentimes, the third, fourth, or in some cases, ninth product to market in a therapeutic class provides really diminishing or incremental value. And so while you may have bought an asset or you may be developing something in multiple sclerosis or you know pick a disease, is that really the best thing that you're doing? What's happened with these rebates and prices is I can bring a product to market, I can have an artificially high list price, I can provide uh, super rebates, and I can drive utilization of my product and my dashboard and my metrics look great because I brought this product and I, you know, I gained share and I can increase my price. Well, some of that is due to what's happening behind the scenes in this dark world. And so I think for pharma, again, my recommendation is, you know, you can fight it. You can have your PR people, your lobbyists do what you need to do. But at the end of the day, are you working in a true kind of free market economy? And if you assume that there's going to be more discussions about your price and negotiations on your price, use that as a, a prism on what are the right products to bring to market. Maybe some products don't deserve premium pricing. Maybe they only should be studied in a narrow population with an unmet need. And if that asset doesn't provide the ROI, maybe you ought to look elsewhere. Get back to the business of innovation as opposed to playing these types of games, if you will, because I think that's what the outcry has been about is, all right, we know what's going on. We've seen it going on. It's not providing the right value, as the secretary says. And I think a lot of people, even in industry, are like, is that really the you know, how we want to be known as an industry. Let's get back to innovation, developing truly novel things, in some cases, sacrificing broad indications for narrow ones. You see this with rare diseases. There's been a focus on that area. Okay. So industry has the ability to react, to pivot, to evolve despite these challenges. And if you have products and franchises that quite frankly have been only supported or supportable do these types of shenanigans take an honest look and decide if that's a business that you want to stay in. Yeah. Pharmaceutical life sciences companies have sort of a loophole if their products aren't differentiated at this juncture, and that is buying formulary access. So if rebates go away and there's no back rooms in which to negotiate a super rebate, as you called them, to entice, let's just say, a PBM or another channel stakeholder to make your drug preferred, then it's kind of back to basics, right? The product itself really needs to be differentiated in an articulatable fashion. The price has to reflect what the, you know, the value of the product. And as you said, you know, like, are you R&Ding, developing the right drugs, like right from the very beginning? Are we distinguishing the population which has the unmet need who's going to benefit from that product? Because no longer can you just say, well, you know, everybody can try it, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'll I'll give you uh, another example, which has been talked about where commercial pharma products are able to maintain revenue, but in a fashion that I think for most people seems odd or doesn't make any sense. And that is when products face patent expiration. So 
if you know, uh, you're facing a patent expiration on your branded product, billion dollar blockbuster generic entrants are going to be available. So what do you do? You, through various ways, you delay the entrant of the generic. In a lot of cases, it's been well established, branded pharma raises the price of their branded product ahead of competition. I mean, that that defies the laws of basic economics, right, <laughs> of, of price point being a function of supply and demand and competition. And those types of maneuvers are available, but ultimately, to me, not a platform for long-term success. And I get the fact that, well, those are the rules of the road, and we're playing by the rules of the road. And right now, rebates are part of the rules of the road. And I have nothing wrong with saying, hey, look, we have enough other issues, and we're good partners in the system because we do good things. It's not like you can isolate one rule and say, well, don't play by that rule, but you have to play by the others. They are the rules of the road. So I get that. But I think this, again, my advice to industry is, I think we have to get start, you know, thinking about a new world order where these arbitrages or these little distortions, I call them, rather than leaning more heavily on those, as you said, get back to the business of innovation, improving people's lives by not playing by these business rules, but playing by the science of it and better medicine. I think that's the core of our industry. So maybe our valuations go down a little bit. Maybe the sixth product doesn't get a high valuation, it doesn't get to market. And I think that's okay. That those are some of the trade-offs that I think industry needs to confront. These are for-profit entities that we're talking about, and they're rational actors, and they're very smart. So if there is an opportunity to maximize revenue, the example that you cited, it is super common that right before patent expiration, expiry, drug prices go up. Why? It makes perfect sense because that's how you maximize revenue. That is a win-lose. If you look at it in the context of, you know, if we actually become patient-centric, if we actually become even ultimate purchaser-centric, i.e., let's look at our country as a whole. Yeah. I think what you're advocating is how do you make life science pricing, the life science business, how do you make it a win-win? Because anything else at this juncture especially given the transparency that is starting to illuminate the space, anything else besides a win-win seems to be becoming unsustainable or just a PR nightmare. I think that's right. And I think what history tells us is that we as an industry, and again, uh, I'm speaking half of the life science pharmaceutical industry, we can lead or we can follow or be subject to policies that maybe we don't like. But I think what most people say is regardless of what policy direction we go into, we have a wonderful industry that does lots of great things for people and should still be able to return good value to our investors and shareholders. And we can still behave in a different way, despite, you know, there's a difference between what we could do versus what we should do. And I think if we take the high road, that you have a, a product, you've developed it, you have good evidence, you have your pricing, you have you know, market access support, that you can do things that doesn't necessarily optimize just for revenue. And maybe that's what we want to do. And therefore, regardless of the policy proposals that surface, that we can still be successful. And if your platform and your thesis can survive despite changes, then I think that's, that's, it's almost like a litmus test. It's like, 
okay, this is the this can work because now I'm not having to react to changes. I'm just going about my business in in a thoughtful way for to make it a win win. So, for example, there are companies, and, and we don't need to name names, that don't play these types of games with their products. They have one price. They don't discount. My price stands alone, and I work with my channel partners and my customers to understand that value. This proposal has almost zero bearing on their business model. And outside of the general macro level, maybe depression of the future, it, it doesn't my business practices. That's a, an awfully nice place to be just because you're doing things in a way that makes sense and you're not at risk, that your business practices aren't at risk due to political wins. So let me ask you this quote. Pharmaceutical companies have been strongly lobbying for the end of the safe harbored PBM rebates. I mean, all of them across the board, even the ones who are, as they say, paying to play. So you are ninth to market. And the way that you're getting on formulary is by being the one to pay the biggest rebates, undercutting the current market basket. Given what we just talked about, and obviously people that work at life sciences companies are some of the smartest around, are pharma companies short term solving the PR problem? You know what I'm saying? Like they're getting razzed right now for having prices which are too high. So blaming it on the PBMs has been a, let's just say, a longstanding strategy. (laughs) So in a way, they were kind of backed into a corner. And, you know, since this legislation came up, they sort of have to support it. Otherwise, they might look like hypocrites. But at the end of the day, they're scrambling going on in back rooms because people are thinking to themselves, wow, you know, this backroom loophole negotiation thing is not going to be on the table any longer. What are we going to do? I th- oh, such a good question. And I think to put it slightly differently, you know, how genuine are life science companies about, you know, interested in talking about their prices? And I absolutely agree with you that the broad support for this proposal is aligned with a broader strategy of pointing the finger at the middlemen in terms of why prices are so high. And so I think you've raised a point, which is, is it just for PR? Is it opportunistic? Is this the easiest dog to kick? You know, when, when you get dragged in front of Congress, uh, for those who stayed up on C-SPAN and watched all the testimony, uh, the PBMs were kind of, you know, the fingers pointed them as the bad guy. And I do believe that there's a element here of this is the easiest way to deflect. And we can't be seen as obstructionists. And there's some good things about this proposal. It, it may not be perfect. And I think part of that calculus is, because the system is still imperfect, even if these proposals were put in place, because the it doesn't really address the come to Jesus moment of accountability and adjudication, that you know this just kind of maintains other status quo elements in the short term. I think there's some truth in that assumption. And let's get through this and we continue to make it work. So I think for a nuanced interpretation of the reaction and the support is that this is workable. And so let's go down this path, right? As opposed to an alternative, which is this is a Band-Aid. Let's not keep putting Band-Aids on more fundamental systemic problems. That's a really hard place to start because that's a broader discussion about overall healthcare spend and healthcare reform. And so I think that's, uh, again, you, you raise a good point. And I think it's a fair read of why there is support that we can tune things up. We can more transparency have a problem with that. How I then subsequently behave 
after, you know, let's say this proposal is finalized and goes into effect in 2020, which is what they're talking about, which is almost outrageous in that we'll probably not get everything in place by then, but let's just say it happens. That it's a buffer. It kicks the can down the road a little bit. We can make this work. I think that's the mindset because it's, you know, how far do you want to blow the whole thing up? I don't think people want to put that on. Industry is not quite ready to put that on the table just yet. Well, I got a theory to run past you, Quo. How about this one? So the drugs that tend to rely on rebates a lot, the drugs that tend to buy their way onto to formulary are ones like uh, primary care, small molecules, for example, that there's a lot of drugs, there's a lot of competition in the category. It's tough to differentiate between the different therapeutic agents. And furthermore, there might not be diagnostic tests to assess whether one is better than the other in certain cases. So you can't know in advance if one is going to be better than the other, right? Whereas the ones that tend to not rely so much on rebates are like oncology products, where they're very, in some respects, in certain cases, differentiated. There's diagnostic tests that show which one is better than the other. They're for a narrow slice of the patient population. Like there is a definite appropriate cohort that which is identified in advance. Could pharma be thinking that the industry is moving more toward the latter category? In other words, drugs, as you had mentioned earlier, drugs for rare diseases, specialty drugs, like that's where the industry is going. So Could there be a thought that because the bulk of our business in a couple of years is going to be specialty focused and rare disease focused anyway, and we don't like PBMs having so much power and control in the marketplace and us being thrown over a barrel, could that be part of the thinking here? I love some of the examples you brought up. Let me first clarify that there's another element that is probably outside the scope of this discussion. It's not part of this proposal. This proposal is really looking at the Medicare Part D benefit and the Medicaid pharmacy benefit, which are generally thought of as home self-administered drugs. As you said, small molecules, oil drugs. There are some injectables in there, but these are drugs that you take at home. Now, there are rare disease drugs like that. There are oncology drugs like that. But what this proposal and this discussion about rebates does not address are what we call buy and build drugs, things that are like are 60-minute IV infusion in oncology, rheumatology. These are not complex injections into the eye, which are, again, buy and build. That's under Medicare Part B as in boy, not D as in David. So we should put those products aside because buy and build drugs have a whole other set of regulation, dynamics, price reporting, et cetera. Now we're talking about oral drugs, and there are oncology oral drugs. There are rare disease oral drugs. Well, you're absolutely right. You know, whether you want to call it precision medicine, uh, well-known biomarkers, diagnostics, they're really differentiated. You know, they're, they're, they're high end need. There's no competition. The rebating process due to formulary access and other things, rebates still play a role because everyone's just so used to giving some level of rebate that you just kind of do it. And pharma saying, well, now if I only have to pay rebates to the PBMs for, for concrete fair market value services that they're giving me, now, I don't have to pay an excess rebate just as part of doing business. And that's a good thing. And that's why this proposal is a good thing. And now, if I could redeploy that part of the rebate with just my cost of doing business and put it back to the patient as a way to minimize their out-of-pocket, that's exactly what we want to do. Because remember, 
in Medicare Part D, you can't use coupon cards. You can't use things to offset that patient out of pocket. This now solves that part of the problem. And that's why if you're a single product company with that type of product and you're doing business today, this proposal is a better way of doing business. It is incrementally a good thing. And so to your point, given that the portfolios of companies are changing and more and more innovation is happening where there is much better alignment of pricing and value, I think for those types of companies and those use cases, this is a pretty good fix. The issue still, again, that, that come to you is let's say you, you now you're at a price point of 100 and you want to take a 48% increase or you want to take a 10% increase. Right now, it's a slippery slope for industry. You don't know where you're going to be criticized for that. There's no central body to do that. You're just kind of doing it on your own. And so my advice to companies that you're, that doesn't mean you're completely out of the desert. You still may get hit with things, even though you think you're doing the right thing. So at some point, the, the reason I go to some level of accountability adjudication would be nice. It just gives everyone a new set of rules to play by. And hopefully it's a, it's a better ecosystem and a, and a better engine that we build. So that we don't have to constantly walk on pins and needles or feel like, are, you know, are we doing the right thing? To have a frank discussion about it and have an open discussion and then whatever comes out of that process we all live by, that's not a bad solution either. And I, I hope people, you know, are willing to embrace that. But back to your point of, is industry moving in a good direction? Absolutely. Does this proposal help certain types of companies and products? Absolutely. There should be support in certain sectors because just kind of realigns things in a way that hopefully makes sense and and while still allowing companies to be successful. So definitely being able to differentiate on clinical outcomes using real world evidence is going to become more and more important. And maybe as kind of a corollary to that, ensuring that, you know, and this has been talked about quite a bit, making sure that in quotes, market access relevant endpoints are included in clinical trial design, you know, like actually asking payers or insurance carriers what they are looking for to ensure that those endpoints are in fact being measured so that when the drug comes to market, it's uh, well-received. Of course, those are tough to do in, in hindsight or relatively rapidly. So it could also be, and let me know what you think about this, just simply could you differentiate based on, for example, patient preference or with the support programs that you're offering? Like there's a lot of talk these days about digital therapeutics and, you know, or connected healthcare. Is that a way to after the fact, in a way, to enhance the value of a drug and perhaps compete in an undifferentiated clinical marketplace. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'll go back to something, Stacey, that you mentioned, which is if you're trying to do that through the Medicare Part D side of the business, that is really hard because unfortunately, by the you know, the government has outsourced the administration of Part D to PBMs and these private insurance companies. And Part of the problem with this system is that the Part D plans aren't necessarily looking after the entire patient. They're really not. They're just contracted to administer one benefit. So if there's a hospitalization, if there's something else going on, you know, you could say indirectly they get may get measured on those metrics, but directly it doesn't really affect them. And so going back to what you said before, the fact that employers and on the commercial side, there's greater awareness, there's greater call to action. I think for a lot of life science companies to take some of these propositions that you've talked about and show them some data, talk about support services, talk about how we may be able to help the patient, there may be actually a more receptive audience on the non-government side 
to try and uh, develop some of these solutions because, the, again, the Part D plan itself is, well, for better or worse, they are not the advocate for the patient. They're, they're just not. Although, aren't there like five star ratings for adherence? So maybe that's one, one potential avenue for Part D is to create program adherence programs effectively. Yes. And that's what I was saying before. There, there are what I would call more indirect metrics, right? I don't want to sound callous and say they don't care about the patient. Of course they care about the patient. Of course they have, as you said, star ratings. You're, you're looking at other metrics of, you know, are we doing a good job and how do we compare one plan to another so that when the bids come, you know, that we have a sense of quality and not just cost. But again, I think my point is it's still a patchwork system, whereas you know, when we talk about these issues of patients languishing or, or suffering adverse events because they can't access something, who really has full control? There are very few entities that do. And employers working with their third-party administrator, their medical plan, their pharmacy plan, they do have, you know, again, theoretically, complete ownership of the patient. Yeah, understood. And do you feel that, you know, like, other contracting models are going to start to take the four. Like, okay, well, we can't do rebates anymore. So let's, what's this value-based contracting thing? I know, you know, maybe there hasn't been such a big incentive in the past, but now we better figure out how to make that happen. I do. And again, there are lots of good things that are emerging. You mentioned value-based contracting, pay for performance, because I, here's one of the things that I think we're all coming to realize and pharma is, is realizing this as well. I think we all too often have leaned on FDA approval of multiple phase three randomized controlled trials to be the end all and be all their product works or product is good. And I think what the feedback is, is this is about life cycle management, that you have certain amount of data and value and pricing at a certain point in time, and that can change. And how much we focus on getting that real world evidence, then re-looking at the value prop, re-looking at the pricing. I think there's going to be more attention to changes in what we know about products and how they're good and how they're not so good and where the value is. And your point about, well, competition comes in. What happens when the new therapeutic product comes into a class and how does that kind of realign everything? That I think it's going to be a much more continuous process going forward. And, you know, so this idea of paying for outcomes is you know, fundamentally saying, well, I don't know if that patient, you know, in the cholesterol space is going to have a cardiovascular event. I only know based on my data what the rates are. But in real world or in your population with different ethnic cultural backgrounds, you know, I don't know. And it's OK to say that. Now it brings, puts everyone at the table saying, oh, you don't know all the answers. Well, what's, a, what's the rubric for us to find those answers and get to a contract and price, which is a win-win? And that's a much better, I think, starting point for a conversation given the unknowns, as opposed to simply saying, I'm the best. You know, I do what works. Here's my price. Take it or leave it. That seems kind of a unilateral discussion rather than a collaborative discussion. Which might work if you have a very highly differentiated product like we were talking about before. Like, for example, a lot of the specialty meds, rare disease meds, oncology meds fall into that category. Like, it might be much more business as usual for that crew. Absolutely. I, I think you're seeing it with products in SMA, some of the gene replacement therapies, where it's very narrowly defined. You know, no product's 100% effective, but you get signals and you kind of know whether it's going to be effective or not. Now you can say, well, I'll rebate the entire price, right? If my outcome is binary, 
yes or no. And it's very that simple. This is obviously oversimplification. But if the outcomes are binary, then you pay based on the binary event, right? It's, it's simple alignment. And there are diseases and products where some are more complex than others. And I think if we look at some of those very simplistic or more simple cases and put some of these novel uh, contracts and pricing platforms in place, I think they'll give people the confidence. And one of the things that's not stated is the infrastructure is not readily available to do these performance contracts in many cases. And that's the logistics are preventing good things from happening. But I, I think there's going to be innovation and solutions on that side as well. So that, again, we get to a more rational kind of business behavior in healthcare, as opposed to as a dealing with these dark things that we <laughs> no one likes to talk about. Yeah, I mean, and as they say, necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> and if it <laughs> and if it hasn't necessarily, you know, like if you've had the rebate angle, then it's been sort of working and vested interests are not super unhappy with it, then like, why do something new? But if we have a situation where you can't do that anymore, and now you have to figure out, okay, well, what's our new kind of contract, then the door opens to a lot of more innovative and creative opportunities. Yeah, no, that's right. Couldn't agree more. Contracting departments will be earning their salaries this year. (laughs) (laughs) Or the consultants. That might be a good segue, Quo. Uh, Do you want to just talk about what you do over at Navigant Help or the help that people can get over at at Navigant if anyone is interested in in learning more? Got a full suite of services around all the topics we're talking about. And obviously, be delighted to help not only analyzing proposals like this, but also fundamentally, you know, helping companies think through commercialization, what's their overall strategy with individual products across their portfolio. Those are all the different functional areas that my colleagues at Navigant provide to industry. And where could they find you? Is it go to your website or is there another place they should be looking? Navigant, N-A-V-I. G-A-N-T dot com. And uh, certainly uh, anyone who wants to get in touch with myself, my contact information is on the website as well. Quo, K-U-O, last name Tong, T-U-N-G at Navigant.com. Fantastic. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Quo. Terrific. Nice talking to you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, You will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.